Are your clothes healthy? How much do you know about what's in them, the fibres and the chemicals and dyes used in the processes? Are these healthy for us, the workers, the neighbouring communities and our living planet? Hello and welcome to the Circular Economy podcast, where we find out how circular approaches are better for people, planet and profit. I'm Catherine Wheatman of Rethink Global, and I'll be chatting with those people making the circular economy happen, rethinking how we design, make and use everything. We'll talk to entrepreneurs and business owners, social enterprises and leading thinkers. You'll find the show notes, links and transcripts at circulareconomypodcast.com, where you can subscribe to updates and our fortnightly edition of Circular Insights. In today's episode, we hear from Elisa Couture, the author of a new book called Healthy Fashion, The Deeper Truths. Elisa combined her experience in fashion design and fashion retail with her academic background in art and design to ask deep questions about fashion. Elisa examines technical and scientific aspects together with creative, spiritual and health elements, explaining why healthy fashion is better for the farmer's textile and garment workers, for the person wearing the clothes, and for nature and our planet. Elisa shares insights from her research into the vast range of plants we used to create textiles in the past, and explains why a selection of these are a great choice for our textile fibres now. Some are suitable for mass production, some for small-scale farming, and others grow wild or in places like deserts and oceans. There are fibres made using waste from another process and fibres with multiple purposes too, creating more products, more value and improving resilience for the farmer. We also talk about dyes and chemicals, unpicking the issues and hearing about some of the alternative approaches that can create healthier textiles. Partway through, we talk about the processes for turning tree fibres into textiles, touching on how lyocell compares with viscose, and I'll explain the key differences between these at the end of this episode. Elisa tells us about machinery developments to help small-scale production become more financially viable, helping balance the need for skilled jobs, paying fair wages, with automating the more laborious processes. Elisa also talks us through the different ways of making fabric from bamboo, and we unpick the green claims of some of these bamboo fibres. They're definitely not all eco-bamboo. So let's get into the interview, and I'll catch up with you afterwards with what I learned. Elisa Couture is the author of Healthy Fashion, The Deeper Truths, released on December the 1st this year. Healthy Fashion is all about fashion for mental health, physical health, spiritual health, and energetic health. Alisa brings a radical new perspective to fashion, looking at everything from the textiles and dyes we use to how our clothes can improve our mental and physical health. Alisa's work shows how all of this is connected to our environment and improving sustainability. We're going to start by asking Alisa to share some of her research on textiles and dyes and then discuss a few of the insights from her book, including what unhealthy fashion is 
and how fashion can evolve to be circular and healthier for us and our living planet. So, Alyssa, welcome to the Circular Economy podcast. Oh, thank you so much, Catherine, for having me. Yeah, it's great to see you today on the other side of the Atlantic. And first of all, I'm really curious to hear what brought you to writing a book about healthy fashion. Where did that come from? Yes, that is a really interesting question. And I took a long time to get it down on paper. It took a couple years and it was sort of part of my lifestyle and my experience in life. I have visited many ashrams and monasteries, so it brought a spiritual realm and aspect to it. And then I've also uh, sort of produced a handmade fashion brand, which was just a small, uh, small batch handmade fashion brand, but it was important. It got into Saks Fifth Avenue Emerging Designer Talent Search Competition. So it all it was produced with hemp and linen and cotton and, and plant-based material. So it was a plant-based brand. So that was another uh, part that launched me into writing this book. So there's many different aspects. I produced a fashion show in 2014. I've been in fashion retail for a very long time. So it was a little bit of a hodgepodge of all of my different background and fashion and experience. And I also went to design school and Academy of Art University in San Francisco. And that really led me down the path of questioning and trying to theorize fashion in a new light, in a new way. And there is a lot of people in the industry that is producing healthy fashion, but it's still not mainstream. It's still uh, in its minor stages and minor processes. So really what kind of brought me into writing this book was also I am a writer. I write short stories and poetry and I used to do that quite often. So I, I love to write and it I have a creative aspect to me. I was a, a fine artist. I, I don't believe I'm an artist anymore because I stopped drawing. I only sketch very rarely. But I started painting and drawing when I was at art school and back in high school many, many years ago. So this fine art aspect, this creative energy is brought into the book as well. But there's a very scientific aspect to the book and there was a lot of research involved. So I bring in sort of the technical scientific aspect and the spiritual, more creative realms. And it's a balance and a merge of both. Mm, that sounds fascinating. And one of the things that uh, really intrigued me about the book was the focus on um, what we might call new materials, but really they're materials from history that we've kind of forgotten about. Um, maybe you could tell us about some of those, the ones that you discovered and thought were really interesting and wondered why we're not, not using these all the time. Yes. So when it comes to circular fashion and sustainability, uh, the most realistic way to beat the pollution and the corruption in the fashion industry is to start a circular fashion economy. And part of that is going plant-based. And we really cannot be 
uh, entirely plant-based if we just focus on cotton and linen. We have to develop and produce multiple different textiles and multiple different types of plants. And so from my research I've gathered uh, in South America in history, they used 500 to 700 different types of plants for textile use. And with that type of number, I actually only gathered 35 but very important plants from history um, that and that have been produced in minor, moderate, and major phases of production, mass production and minor production. And some plants are supposed to be produced in minor phases and never be produced in uh, mass phases. And some are supposed to be produced in mass phases like cotton and linen. So we have different types of fabrics. Um, and I produce this glossary to showcase really what we can do for the fashion industry, what we can do globally at large. And some of the fabrics being nettle, hemp, bamboo, abaca, cactus, peanut, banana, there's so many. And the only th uh, 35 that I've showcased uh, are very important, but there's so many others that I didn't even talk about. So I'm just giving a little bit of a taste of what we can do. And it would be actually important to start focusing on these 35 types of plants based on the research that I have provided in the book because they have such therapeutic properties, because they are uh, produced and developed and founded globally in different countries of the world. So we're really gathering, you know, these types of plants that are significant and say countries in America, um, Sasawashi and uh, Europe, there's the nettle plant. In China, there's bamboo. In Mexico, there's agave. So there's all these different types of plants in all these different types of countries. And when we all gather together and we produce these uh, different plants, we're going to reduce the polyester, which is sort of exploited the industry uh, to extreme ways. Uh, I believe 90% of the industry is man-made uh, rayon, polyester, acrylic, acetate, and it's sort of a non-renewable resource, which is kind of not circular at all. Mm -hmm. uh, even, even if we do uh, try to prevent waste and landfill use with the polyester that doesn't biodegrade, we're still developing a vicious cycle to produce more and more plastic. So really with when we go plant-based, we're also going to downsize because our products are going to be more precious to us because plants are a sacred medicinal medicine to us. We eat plants and we should wear plants. Plants should be a part of our external environment um, in, in a health pursuit, in a medicinal pursuit, and also in an environmental pursuit, most importantly. Yeah, and I'd like to come come back to that. So thinking about one of the criticisms of, of cotton particularly is um, all the irrigation and pesticide use. And of course, cotton's now being produced in very water scarce areas. So it's, it's not even a suitable plant for that particular region of the world. And you've listed a number of, of plants from different regions. So I'm assuming that, you know, those grow well there. And some of those sounded like they were 
um, byproducts of food production anyway, um, similar to the pineapple leaves for Pinatex. So already we're starting to support farmers with more profitable ways of growing things because now you've got two or several products and there's a slide I like to use in, in talks um, with all the different uses of hemp. Um, you know, there's about 50 different things you can use hemp for. So suddenly a farmer's got a whole range of different markets he can sell into. So I think that's that's really interesting that as well as it being healthier to wear, there's the health of the planet because we're growing things where they're, um, you know, where, where they were always grown, where they're suited to growing. And we're growing things that don't require masses of irrigation, pesticides, fertilizers. So it's lighter on the planet and it's lighter on the farmer's input costs. Does that does that make sense in terms of your findings? Oh, that's exactly that's exactly where I'm going and where I'm coming from. And, you know, it we're dealing with a planetary awakening here, and this is not just from climate change or the environmental corruption and pollution in the world. We're dealing with uh, going into a ho more holistic, healthier standpoint. You know, no longer are we going to be using the plastic knives and uh, Tupperware. We're going to be using vegetable-based uh, Tupperware and vegetable-based knives and forks and everything. So the different industries are all kind of going onto this plant-based process and plan so that we can sort of combat the use of petroleum, which is sort of the worst and non-circular thing that we can do for the fashion industry and other industries. Um, and I wanted to break it down a little bit because you had mentioned cotton and cotton is uh, sort of non -G uh, the non-GMO cotton is is the really pleasant cotton. Uh, about eighty to ninety percent of cotton right now is genetic genetically modified, which is a problem because it's it's um, hurting the land. It's creating issues with uh, how it's being grown and how it's being processed. But where I'm coming from is there's different categories that we can sort of bring about in making this plant-based fashion industry possible. And right now there's, I don't even believe there's, I think there's about 5% uh, of plant-based fashion being produced at this point, just really not good. Uh, but we have different categories like wild weeds. We have ways of uh, permaculture farming. We have uh, natural waste resources. I know that uh, in Europe they're using pine needles to be produced in a viscose, but it would be better to use a, a lysol process. Uh, but pine needles is a natural resource and it's a wasted resource and that we can use. There's also the desert lands that aren't really being occupied. Uh, mostly they, we could be farming cactuses and we could be using the, the gel for food and we can use the skin for textiles. Uh, some of the textiles we can use would be palm, pandan leaf, agave, and aloe vera. So we have the desert, the wetland, wild weeds, the permaculture, the natural waste plants, resources from the food industry and just from the wild forests. And we also have uh, 
seaweed farms. We could develop more and more seaweed farms and not take away from the planet, but flourish the planet. We can, we don't have to take the resources. We flourish and we, we act like Native Americans. We only take three quarters or a quarter of what is being harvested. We can do it in a very uh, sustainable way. We can do it in a holistic way in a way that doesn't take, but is a receiving and a taking. It's, it's, it's a natural way of life, um, which is very circular, which is very healthy and is going to, I believe, just bring the consciousness level on this planet to heights, greater heights. Yeah, and I think there are some really, really good ways of thinking about those plants, aren't, aren't there? If you think about the, um, you know, are you, is it more attractive for a farmer to go for a multi-use plant that can have, where he can have markets in, in food and medicines and cosmetics as well as apparel? Um, is there a way of harvesting wild weeds? Though I guess we've got to be careful there not to um, make those make those too attractive because then you know what we're what we're finding in the UK with foraged food um, is that people then start to, to want to use that as a business and over harvest and then we're back to things not being sustainable because um, you know people want to exploit nature for profit um, and we're back to the same the same problem that we're that we're trying to resolve um, so. I think there are. It sounds like there are, you know, loads of really interesting examples in the book for people to read more about. And one of the things I was interested to explore with you was some of the other issues, even with natural fibres, the way that we produce things currently. And this was a kind of um, eureka moment for me when I was reading some info from Patagonia a few years ago. Um, was that they had some problems with. Um, people getting sick in a, in a store that they just stocked with new products uh, and they didn't realise it was anything to do with the products, did all sorts of tests on you know the decoration and the fittings in the store and to try and work out what it was. And it turned out to be all the stocks of new cotton clothing that they'd put in. This is probably uh, 20, 30 years ago this happened. And they did some analysis and realised that although it was organic cotton, it had probably about 30% of the fabric itself was finishing chemicals and dyes, including formaldehyde. So that just completely shocked them to the core when they realised that although they were buying an organic fibre, the processing of that into a textile was anything but organic. And so I know you've done some work around plant-based and mineral-based um, dyes and, and finishing chemicals um, that, that could be used instead of the synthetic ones. Maybe you could talk us through a few of those. Uh, yes, so we have different types, and that was all the information that you said, and everything to consider. And I will add, I believe that there needs to be some kind of government involved, and there has to be, you know, no way national parks are protected. We, we have to, you know, create uh, sacred land. We also have to make way and room for bringing more ecology, healthy ecology to the planet. And that is where bringing in the, the new plants and harvesting from, say, wild weeds. We have to get um, 
government officials involved. We have to bring in the environmental um, activists and environmental workers into the picture so that we do it in a, an appropriate way because it could be a disastrous science experiment, but it also could be a, a blossoming paradise. Um, but for the textiles, as you had said, um, this is also um, a large part of the circularity fashion. We can use textile dyes from roots. We can use them from flower petals, uh, lichens, and mushrooms. However, that would have to be in a, a, a minor phase production because because the forests depend on them. Uh, we could use seaweed and algae for textile dyes. We could crush crystals into pigments. We could use our soils and clays. And we can also use food like uh, berries and um, tea leaves and all sorts of fruits and vegetables. And I know that there is one company that's turning uh, food waste into a freeze-dried powder and that in turn uh, they use as a textile dye. So there's a lot of uh, new developments. I know that textile dye is very expressed in the minor kind of bohemian local types of ways of producing it. It's, it's very highly advertised as being sort of elite and being uh, only showcased for small batch production. But there is definitely a way for us to be able to produce them at a larger scale. I know Acroma is a textile dye supplier and they do produce in chemicals, but they also have a specific type of uh, textile sampling that they do and it's a large mass production of using you know acorns and different types of natural waste um, resources that we have handy and they produce them and make a wide variety of beautiful browns and reds and blues and greens so yes it is possible it's just not common it's mm. not uh, mainstream it's not standard and that's sort of where we want to go with circular fashion and the circular economy I yeah believe. yeah and i think um a chroma that you mentioned i think i'm writing saying that they're a supplier to patagonia that we were just talking about and um patagonia has developed a clean color collection though when i was looking last looking online i could only find it listed in the patagonia australia website not on the main one for some reason, but um, some of the examples they gave included um, a rich green dye that came from Chinese silkworm excrement. Um, and we could, uh, well, I'm sure we wouldn't debate the um, the ethics of farming silkworms, but um, I guess, you know, may, maybe there's another, another way of um, harvesting excrement from insects. And then citrus brown, less controversially, is made from bitter orange peel, um, that itself being a residue from herbal remedies. So again, it's the kind of multi-purpose use, isn't it? Um, so I think the, the fact that Patagonia are uh, uh, forging ahead with those kind of developments is, is encouraging. And one of their principles is that they like to share what they're doing with, with other companies to try and encourage others to do it. Um, so I think you're right that we could be seeing lots of lots of new developments in that area. 
and it gives people in universities and you know people with um, innovative and, and creative and scientific expertise a whole new research area to get into and, and come up with some exciting um, new dyes dyes and chemicals so um, we've talked a bit about um, the fibers and I know in the in the book you encourage us to, to think about think beyond just the bill of materials and choosing different fibers but the fact that we could use um, more advanced machinery to make it easier to produce these textiles from those new fibers could you unpack that a bit for us yes and I am, you know, I'm not in textile manufacturing, but I do know quite a bit that there is, there has been advances in, say, a developing PINA in the Philippines. There's been some textile uh, development phases of developing uh, PINA, pineapple leaves and textiles. So it's a, a machine specifically for pina leaves and uh, another scientist developed a machine that could take the corn husk off of the corn and develop a fiber from the corn husk and this machinery is you know there's no labor involved you're not, you know you're not going into a field and picking it by hand we really have to take advantage of building machines that could not put too much labor on the labor workers because we want to advance society. We don't want to go back in time and spend hours and hours on a loom, which is not a bad thing because there are artists all over the world that are keeping a tradition and holding it sacred. But we do uh, we do have to um, think about the underdeveloped countries of the world and sharing advanced technology and machinery so that they can advance as a community and a society. And I think textile production could be an important part for uh, global advancement. Mm. It could really open a, a new gamut of, of trying to help support the workers and the laborers and not put too much stress and, and not too much put physical stress onto the human. It's really about advancing the textile industry and it's not just going back in time in ancient history and working on these types of machines that are really not going to produce the way we want to produce. And it's not either um, turning into like a polyester lab where there's just so much polyester that can be reproduced in so little time. We want to still uh, make it slow, make it circular, uh, make it also advanced. There's a balance involved. Mm. But I think that with new textile machinery, it, it's really going to affect the world. And it's being done. It's, it's being done in multiple countries. Uh, they're choosing to uh, produce in different types of plants. And they're choosing to uh, create textile machinery dedicated to these t uh, different types of plants, like pine needles. They had to develop something to create a viscose into a textile. And we don't have to do everything cell cellulose and e everything worked by uh, thread. We can 
make the lysol process. We can choose to use plants and, and, and make it into a lysol process, like tensile. Tensile is a perfect example of a machine that they use to bring uh, bring the, the, the plant solution into a spinneret, and then it would weave much more quicker than in other types of processes. Mm. So I guess what we're trying to do is replace some of the very labor-intensive processes. I, I remember when I first learnt about um, Pinatex and the, the um, using the fibres from the pineapple leaves, which are incredibly long, which makes them really useful as a to make a fibre from. But it's a very labor-intensive process, and hence traditionally would be used for things like wedding dresses because that was something that the community would all put a lot of time into. Um, you know, creating a fibre to, to make somebody a wedding dress. But if we want these natural fibres to compete on, on, on cost, you know, even if they're a bit more expensive, but we want them to compete on cost really with synthetics and with cotton, otherwise it's only going to be suitable for the luxury end. You know, we want to democratise these materials. So finding a balance between um, creating meaningful and enjoyable employment not monotonous employment and not you know sitting sitting peeling um, fibers from pineapple leaves day after day after day then we have to get this balance right don't we of the the technology and the machinery but still but not automating it beyond the point where we've we've hardly employed anybody and these these jobs have got to be um, you know living wage jobs and um, you know not not dangerous we don't want to go back to the time of the industrial revolution in the uk when um you know children and women would be doing incredibly dangerous dangerous jobs for long hours so um can i uh, i'm going to ask you put you on the spot a bit now um with one of the fabrics that i've got a really bad gut feel about um and just see see what your thoughts are on that so in the uk particularly there are an awful lot of adverts for eco bamboo and I know that bamboo grows, you know, like a weed without any pesticides, irrigation. It'll, it'll grow really well. But I can never get under the skin of the process. And when I when I've have investigated, it seems as if only a tiny proportion of bamboo is made on a closed loop process where all the process process chemicals to turn the bamboo stalk into a fibre are kept within the factory and, and uh, not allowed out into the environment and that most of it is just as bad as um, a lot of the other synthetic processes. So um, may, maybe you could give us your, um, your take on that. Yes, I agree with you 100%. Uh, the viscose bamboo is not being produced in a healthy way and I... I have read and been very discouraged about bamboo because bamboo is a plant that is extremely sacred and to be put on the body energetically would be very healthy and therapeutic. So I did walk into a, a boutique uh, about a year ago and I saw this beautiful scarf and it was made in a bamboo linen so it was made like linen it was a naturally uh 
a natural process of producing bamboo and it was soft and it was beautiful and it was nice. So I think the, the bamboo lyocell, which is rare, but should be produced much more significantly, is an important part of bringing bamboo, bamboo into the fabric scene. And as well as bamboo linen, um, you know, not heavily processed, still soft and supple and a great uh, fabric for apparel. But yes, this whole exploitation of bamboo viscose has really uh, taken over and you know, in, on some advertisements I've even seen on a pillow, they call it bamboo, uh, but it's a it's literally polyester. They've they've used the name bamboo and they've completely exploited uh, the fabric and textile entirely. Wow, wow! So yet another example of of greenwashing, um, which I'm sure, like like many of us working in circular economy and sustainability you get fed up with as well of all the sort of you know um random acts of greenness that people get really good pr out of and yet you look at it and think well you've you've solved one little problem but created a whole lot more because it's you know it's not actually any better so that's 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 really interesting so um the book's coming out in december elisa um have you got launch events planned or are you going to do it virtually how's how's that going to work uh well i'm still working on the the launch projects and this is my book tour is part of my launch so i thank you so much for having me and i've enjoyed every minute of it but my book is going to be released december 1st uh 2021 it's uh something that I've been looking forward to in a milestone in my life and career. So I'm, I'm very uh, privileged to be able to publish a book as yourself. You are also an author. It's, it's an exciting opportunity. I've had this idea for many years and being able to put it into a book and being able to share it and being a, an advocate and activist for circular fashion is definitely a responsibility. So I, I just can't wait to see the outcome and, and see what happens. Yeah. Yeah, it's all it's all very exciting. So um, don't forget to get somebody to do a video of you opening the, uh, the first box of books that arrive at your house. That's supposed to be one of the um, <laughs> the typical things that authors do is, you know, the book opening or the book box opening ceremony. Um, but yes, it's exciting <laughs> stuff. So where would people be able to find out more about you and the book, Elisa? Yes, um, you can find me at my website, www.hf, H as in healthy, F as in fashion, campaign.com. I have a specific tab on the top that says fashion book, and that's where you can read some more information about the book. I have a Q&A on there. Um, you can also reach me on my social media. I have on my website uh, several social media social media accounts, uh, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. And if you want to go straight to finding the book, you can go to Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, IndieBound. You just have to type in healthy fashion, the deeper truths. 
And that's where you'll find the book. And like I said, there it is heavily involved with circular fashion, sustainable fashion, eco fashion, fashion for the environment. It does talk a lot about fashion for health and topical therapeutic treatment, but is very heavily involved in um, advocating and active, activating fashion consciousness, environmental fashion consciousness. So it is also represented in 35 different bookstores that I've Googled. I, I know that there's more out there that are representing the book and selling the book. But if you just Google search it, you'll definitely find it. And like I said, it's a, it's a very happy time for me. And I can't wait for the outcome and see what happens. Yeah, it should be really exciting. So there's lots of work going on, isn't there, to bring bring the skills of making and mending back to life. And of course, to encourage people to experiment with these traditional natural fibres that are healthier for us, healthier for the farmers and healthier, of course, for the planet. And that's what we, we need more than ever. So, Elisa, thank you very much. And I'll put those links in the show notes at circuareconomypodcast.com. And uh, yeah, good luck with the launch. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Catherine. We only scrape the surface of all Elisa's work, helping people understand how what we wear impacts the health of our living planet, those people producing the garments, and the health of all of us. What touches our skin also makes a difference to our day-to-day health. I was amazed to hear how many plants have been used to make textiles in the past, Elisa's research uncovered between 500 and 700 different plants just in South America. Of course, it's a similar problem to the food system. If we rely on a handful of crops to produce textile fibres, we leave the producing regions and the textile supply chain in vulnerable positions, at risk of losing harvest to disease, crop failures and adverse weather conditions. So we can see it makes much more sense to broaden the range of plants we can use, especially if those crops are particularly suited to different regional growing conditions. If we can use crops that have multiple purposes for fibres, medicines, foods, cosmetics and more, that's even better. Elisa mentioned that some of these ancient crops fell out of favour because converting them into fibres was difficult or time-consuming. For example, the pina fibre from pineapple plant leaves. It was really encouraging to hear Elisa talk about the development of advanced machinery, meaning we can balance provision of skilled jobs with fair wages with technology that can automate the most laborious or repetitive parts of the process. It was good to hear Elisa bringing permaculture in as a key design approach and a helpful way to see things through a systems thinking perspective. Partway through, we talk about the lyocell process compared to viscose for processing tree fibres. Lyocells made from wood, mostly eucalyptus, though oak and birch are also suitable. The wood's ground into a pulp and then dissolved using a chemical called amine oxide to create cellulose liquid, which can be dried and then spun into yarn. A company called Lensing sells its fibre branded as tensile lyocell and uses a closed-loop process which recovers and reuses the chemical solvents. It's also worth noting that the lyocell process uses a lot of energy, so if it's produced in countries that use coal power, that's going to create high levels of greenhouse gas emissions. 
Viscose is also made from tree fibres, often from softwoods like beech, pine, eucalyptus again, and also bamboo. Although these are quick growing, they're not necessarily grown using regenerative systems. Viscose production uses a lot of problematic chemicals, including carbon disulfide, which causes severe environmental damage, as well as multiple physical and mental health problems for both factory workers and people living nearby. A report by Changing Markets in 2017 highlighted many issues linked to the factories supplying big fashion brands. And there's a follow-up report, Dirty Fashion, published in December 2020. I've put a link in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. Viscose can be a sustainable fibre if it's produced using regenerative and closed-loop processes, but generally it's not. In the last few months, there's been some positive announcements about chemical-free viscose processes developed by a company called Spinova. I've put a link to that in the show notes. By the way, the Circular Economy podcast is well into the top 10% of all podcasts globally. So thanks for listening and helping us climb up the podcast charts. If you like what we're doing, do please leave a review in your podcast app. It really helps other people find the podcast. And if you send a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info, we'll give you a shout out on the show. So that's it for this episode of the Circular Economy podcast. Thank you to our guest this week, Elisa Couture, author of Healthy Fashion, The Deeper Truths. You can find out more and follow Elisa Couture on social media, and you can pre-order a copy of Healthy Fashion from Amazon. I've included the link in the show notes. Or even better, order it from your local indie bookstore. As usual, you can check out the other links we mentioned in the show notes at circulareconomypodcast.com. If you're looking for episodes on a particular circular economy strategy or for a market sector or specific countries, check out our interactive podcast index. There's a link on the podcast homepage at www.circulareconomypodcast.com and every episode includes an interview transcript. Don't forget that you can help make the circular economy happen too, with the choices you make at work and in your everyday life. Buying pre-used, keeping what you have for longer, repairing it and making sure it has another life. And you can help spread the word, talk about the circular economy and help other people find this podcast by leaving us a rating and a review on your podcast app. Email a screenshot of your review to podcast at rethinkglobal.info and we'll give you a shout out on the show. If you'd like to learn more about the circular economy, why not go back and listen to episode one and two or buy the new edition of my award-winning book, A Circular Economy Handbook, How to Build a More Resilient, Competitive and Sustainable Business, which takes you through the concepts and practicalities with lots of real examples from all around the world. The Circular Economy Podcast is brought to you by Rethink Global, helping you succeed with circular. You can find information on our talks, workshops, coaching and advice, and circular economy resources at www.rethinkglobal.info or connect with me, Catherine Wheatman, on LinkedIn. 
If you like what you're hearing, please hit subscribe and we'll see you next time.